Our scripture reading for today is from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 23. And Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush to the, in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all the people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agog and the beast and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agog, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as, as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the Lord of, the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central. Um, my name is Josh Kim, and one of the assistant pastors here at Christ Central Church. 
Um, this morning, we pick up where we left off last week in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, last week, Pastor Howard preached from the beginning story of chapter 14, where Jonathan, the king's son, um, records most unlikely victory over his enemies. But rather than acknowledging that God has worked through Jonathan, Saul, again, points to himself and makes it all about him. And for the rest of the chapter, he makes a rash vow that actually puts his son in danger and almost for Saul to have to hand him over to death by deflecting the blame on his son only for his people to come to Jonathan's side to say, God must be with Jonathan to save him. So you see, Saul, time and time again, as we've seen throughout the book of Samuel, continues to make it all about himself. And Saul's story is a tragic tale that goes on and on and about how he rises to the power, but he also falls tragically as a king that loses his own way. And this morning as we gather in our homes to worship the Lord, it's easy for us to point fingers at Saul and stand to condemn him to say, this is not the king that we need or we want and put out all our hopes in the coming king, David. And we ought to do that. We are taught to do that throughout the scripture. But before we do that, what this story of Saul forces us this morning is to examine our own hearts, especially in light of all that is going on in our world today. Why? Because King Saul, and I think this is providential, where God really is speaking to us through 1 Samuel, King Saul reminds us a lot about ourselves. Meaning there's a lot more of Saul in us than we like to admit. And this chapter is particularly revealing of Saul's flaws that could easily be ours. That's why I titled today's message as Christianity 101. As Pastor Howard powerfully reminded us, where is our Christianity going in our nation? As we look at this text, it reminds us of the foundation of what it means for you to be a follower of Christ. And as we look at the flaws and failures of Saul in his broken relationship with God, ultimately leading to the rejection of God, him as a king, I think it really reveals to us in our hearts of how often we have broken our relationship with God. So three things we're going to look at as we examine our own hearts, the basics the foundation of Christianity 101, according to Saul's failures, are obedience, repentance, and worship. And it begins with obedience for Saul. And in Saul's case, disobedience begins. I think one of the common responses we get during this time of pandemic, especially talking to our parents, is that our children seem to struggle with selective listening. I think a lot of us will testify to that, and that's why all the more they need Christ in their lives. So please do sign up for VVS. Uh, they need it as much as you and I need it for them. Saul, in this story, struggles with major case of selective hearing, to say the least. 1 Samuel 15.1 starts by saying, The Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen. The word, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of the host, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. 
Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, oxen and sheep, camel and donkey. You see, when Samuel says in verse 2, the Lord of hosts, or another way to say, Lord, all, Lord everlasting has commanded this to you. This phrase occurs here and 76 other times. When Bible describes the Lord of the host, Lord of everlasting is speaking to you. God means business here. This is what God wants to be done. This war that is about to happen is not Saul's victory party, or it is not a way for Saul to expand his kingdom. It is actually God's just war. God is going to fulfill his promise that he gave to Israelites from long ago. And the next command carries their weight for the nation of Israel. God commands complete destruction, annihilation of Amalekites. And now when we hear the details of the destruction, we get all kinds of questions, don't we? Why would good loving God would allow Amalekites, a nation, to be wiped out like that? And there's actually another whole sermon in here, but I'm not going to focus on that because that's not the main point of the text. And I think I could explain a little bit more if you were to come onto virtual live. If you have questions about that, we could discuss it more. But I want us to focus on the reason why God wants to punish Amalekites is because Amalekites have the history of opposing God's people. If you look at Exodus 17, Amalekites are the first people group that opposes Israel on their way out to Exodus. And throughout the history of Israel, through Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and here in 1 Samuel, Amalekites are constantly provoking Israelites and pillaging them. And later on, in the book of Esther, we see the remnant of Amalekite, Haman, the Agite, the ruler of Amalekites as are known to be called, attempts genocide of God's people, Israel, in exile. So God, in his divine justice and his divine promise in Deuteronomy 25, commands Saul to wipe out the entire people group of Amalekites out of his divine good justice. I know there's a lot more in there, but the main point is that God's, this is God's desire. God is fulfilling his promise, and God commands Saul to carry it out as his vehicle of a leader of a nation. But Saul doesn't obey. Verse 8, it says, And he took Agag, Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with edge of the sword. Again, but Saul, Bible wants is repeating to stress the point, but Saul and the people spared, and the word spared here is a singular here, meaning Saul is the one that's leading this, spared Agag, and best of the sheep, and the oxen, and the fattened calves, and the lamb, and all that was good, and would utterly, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. More accurately, here, as we see, Saul seemingly obeys, but he leaves out a few parts. Or Saul, you could say, obeys about 90% of what God wants him to do. Or 99% but he leaves out 1%. That's A average, right? A plus, as you would say. But is it good enough? Absolutely not. 
This is God's verdict in verse 11. Word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret. Once again, the word here, regret, is not the way that we understand regret. This is actually translated also as a sorrow, meaning God is expressing his different attitude, his sorrow, his sadness, grief over the decision that was made. Does not mean that God does not know. God did not know Saul was going to do this. God knew, of course, as we see later on, verse 29, it says, glory of the Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God does not have, not have control over the history, but God expresses sorrow here. And he says, I have sorrow, regret, that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. You see here, God determines the course of history and steps, but God genuinely has sorrow and basically says, Saul has not obeyed my commandments. Even if he forgets to do one thing out of 10 things he's told in God's eyes, if any part is disobeyed, it is complete, utter hatred of God's command. And that's the basic foundation of Christianity as we know it. Either you are in it, or you're not. There is no middle ground. Your relationship with God means you are totally committed to Christ or you're not. And obedience is a genuine outflow of the relationship between you and the Lord. And your obedience is not okay if it's just 90% or 99%. Because what God desires is your heart. And obedience represents that. This also means that many of us are more like Saul than we like to admit. We give 50% obedience at times, don't we? Sometimes, if you're good enough, we think, God, I'll do all that except for that one thing. But I'm giving you 99% of my obedience. Well, that guy over there gives like 10%. I'm much better, right? But what God wants us it's not 99% or 90%, but God wants 100%. So let's be honest here. Some of us, honestly, are dating people we should not be dating. Right? Some of us are cheating, are cutting corners in our schools and our, and our work, and we know it. You know it. Some of us just can't seem to forgive that one person. God, I would love everybody here except for that one person. Right? You know it. Some of us are not giving and maybe even avoiding God's call to go somewhere, to sacrifice, to serve. And many of us are avoiding God's command. And especially when we close our eyes, no one may see it, but you know it. God's poking at your heart. And especially these past two weeks should have proven to all of us that we are more like Saul when it comes to racial justice than we realized. And if you're offended by what I just said, it proves the point. Justice issue in America is the gospel issue that we have often ignored. And as an Asian American, I'm not exempt from it at all. I don't represent all Asian Americans here, but often we have been complicit in spreading anti-blackness messages. We watched as the messages still blared on, and we took advantage of the situation. As I watched an Asian American cop standing and not intervening during George Floyd's murder, 
You know what bothered me most? What bothered me most wasn't the fact that he wasn't doing anything about it. What bothered me the most was I saw myself in him. He represented my heart quite often. Not only because he is Asian-American, but what he does is what, what he represents is often what I do. How complicit I am and how I fail to love my black brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what that means according to this text, church? That means I am in total disobedience to the almighty God's command to love my neighbor. God has called every single one of us, God has called me to love others, to emphasize, to stand, to weep, to lament, and to love, to not bear false witness, to not steal, to not kill. And when I do not love like that, I am in total disobedience of Christ himself. That means church, as much as, as, as Pastor Howard passionately urged us last week, as we are passionate in our pursuit of obeying and valuing sanctity of life for the unborn child, we are to be just as passionate in our pursuit of obeying and valuing sanctity of life for black and brown bodies. And for us reformed church, if we embrace Martin Luther's teaching that shows our Pharisaic tendencies in our salvation by declaring by salvation by faith alone, we ought to also embrace Martin Luther King's teachings that show us our Pharisaic tendencies in not, not loving our neighbor. And when we do not embrace one another like that, we are living in disobedience. Sin, also known as blatant disregard for God's law, hatred towards God, and we stand condemned before God Almighty. Church, you know what this means? This means it's not a choice. It's not an option for us. Living for Christ with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength, the basic foundation of Christianity as we know it, it does not only mean that you care, you speak out when it's convenient, not only when you could do something out of it out of luxury, not only when it's highlighted in the news, but when you gain social capital out of it. To be follower of Christ is to obey and all of his commandments. And in the words of Pastor Eugene Cho, the Great Commission, preaching of God's word, cannot be divorced from great commandment, loving God and loving others. Those two commandments go hand in hand. Church, sin is sin, not because we didn't do enough. Sin is sin because you are rejecting God's authority, God's command in your life. Sin is sin because we're worshiping any other God besides our God as only authority of our life. Are you living in obedience this morning? Are we living in light of God's command this morning? It's not just merely church attendance. It's not just merely Bible reading and praying. Absolutely. But all more, all the more than that, God wants obedience and surrender because God wants your heart. It's not just social media posts. 
It's not just a protest. Yes, absolutely. But much more than that, God wants your heart in it, in complete obedience to God's command. That leads to our next foundation of Christianity 101 called repentance. And again, in Saul's case, it's lack of repentance. Samuel is heartbroken by this point. He rises early, knowing that he's got to go see Saul. Perhaps he still has hope for him, and he goes to look for him, and he confronts him. In verse 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, not for God, for himself. Again, all about him. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. See, Samuel doesn't find him where he ought to be, and he goes out to look for him. And he finally gets to him. This is what Saul says. In verse 13, the Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, blessed be, to you, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And by now, Samuel just had it. This guy just doesn't get it, doesn't he? So Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And he goes on to say, stop, stop, right? Enough. I get it, all right? I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. In 17, Samuel says, Though you are a little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to, this, to destruction the sinners, the Malachites, the fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoils and do not do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul denies and shifts blame on the people. So Samuel says one more time, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is a sin of divination, and presumption is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from king. That's a pretty harsh rebuke, to say the least. To be rejected by God, you're done. So what does Saul do in response to this accusation or rebuke or being exposed in his sin? In verse 24, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Wait, pastor, doesn't that sound like repentance? Right? I say that all the time. I have sinned. I have transgressed. You are right. And church, this sounds a lot like American church, doesn't it? Well, first, we know this is not true, repentance. Why? Look at his life afterwards, right? His life afterwards does not reflect this change. He says he has sinned. He may even put up a social media post that says, I repented. I'm wrong, right? Maybe even told people about it. Hey, I was wrong about this. I was wrong. But, but look at his life afterwards. It does not reflect any change. He continues to make the same mistake over and over again. He doesn't stand up to Goliath as he's out to. 
He tries to kill David with a javelin and even chases David for 10 years, 10 years to kill this guy. And when he's in deep trouble, rather than calling out to the Lord, rather than waiting on the Lord, he gets a sorcerer and brings Samuel back from the dead. Church, repentance means that you turn around. It's not only intellectual change in your head, but your life changes. And that's basically what the word means. You turn back from where you used to go, and your life now reflects the change in your life. Furthermore, in verse 25, Saul says, now therefore, he moves on very quickly, doesn't he? All right, I repented. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and come with me that I may worship the Lord. What he's saying is not just let's worship the Lord, let's be merry. Rather, what he wants to do is bring Samuel along as a spectacle. He, as a king, wants to pose with Samuel as a prop and to say, I have a great victory, and Samuel is going to prove that. Come and be my prop, because you represent God. Let's do this. Let's pose a little so that people know that I am a great king. There's no real repentance here. Rather, this is using God for your own gain, using God as a prop, putting up God next to you to use him as your tool. Let me pause here to say, because we live in a polarized nation, I know what many of us are thinking as we think about posing, using God as a prop. We have seen the past week our president stand in front of a church who seems to be posing with the Bible as a prop. And yes, of course, we're country divided. And some will say he's making a genuine gesture. And not to take sides, not to say one way or the other, but one truth is absolutely clear, church. Regardless of where we fall in this political era, but we need to make one thing absolutely clear. We as a church under God's authority, and we as a repenting church, must stand to condemn sin when we see it. Whether it is the president of the United States or a pastor or whoever it may be, no one should stand above condemnation of sin. This does not mean that we do not pray for our leaders, but we cannot excuse sin for them, no matter who you are. Because even later, the great king of David, great king David, didn't escape harsh rebuke from prophet Nathan. And it is not just for the presidents and the leaders who stand under this standard. We all do. We cannot excuse sin and not repent. Church, do you know what makes Saul a terrible king and David who comes after a great king? It's not because David is such a better person than Saul. Because I think you'll soon find out if you were to count all the sins David does and Saul, you may actually think David might be worse, right? But Saul is more concerned here about him being found out, caught in his sin. But David is a great king after God's own heart because when he is rebuked, he repents and he lays his life at the foot of God's mercy. 
Church, how do you respond to repentance? How do you respond when God reveals what's in your heart? You know, just yesterday, my wife was calling me out on a sin in my life. Basically, was talking about my insecurity. I mean, my awkwardness in loving my neighbor. And I was thinking, man, I'm attacked here. I'm going to defend myself. So I started to talk back. I know, I know, not the best thing to do. I said, but, well, I am, but I'm busy. I got to preach something to preach. I got to do this and this and this. And she just looked at me and said, do you ever just listen? And I said, but, oh, I'm contradicting myself here. So, yes, I don't. You're right. And she basically said, sometimes you just need to listen when you're exposed and reflect. And I think if this past couple of weeks taught us anything, especially for our non-black, brown folks, is that we are often complicit, ignorant, and we have failed to stand up for our black and brown sisters and brothers in Christ. And I, and all of us, the church, we often talk about repentance in light of this as catchphrase. But, but just maybe, you know, just maybe even before we start teaching on it, start speaking about it, start talking and doing something about it, perhaps what we need to start is to begin by simply listening, learning, being exposed of our racist heart, being exposed of my blind spots, reflecting, seeking God to change our hearts, turn, Repent. Church, is your life marked by repentance? How do you respond? Do you have those who will reveal what's in your heart today? Or are you too lofty or too mature to be rebuked today? Or are the bleeding of the sheep the lowing of the oxen drown out the guilt and condemnation of your heart. We get to the final foundation of Christianity. And the final foundation of Christianity, as we see from this text, is worship. Samuel turns back for Saul, but not before declaring what God has, that God has rejected Saul. We didn't get a chance to read through this, but I'm going to cover the rest of the chapter. In verse 26, it says, Son Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. I will not do that. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. And Saul grabs onto him and says, Please come back and tears off a part of his robe. And Samuel does return, but not for those reasons that you think. In verse 31, so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of Amalekites. And Agag came out to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sore has made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Samuel completes what Saul should have done in the beginning of chapter 15. 
Not only Samuel obeys God's commandment, but I think he's teaching Saul what true worship is all about. What is true worship in this text? What is worshiping in spirit and in truth? Saul here with incomplete obedience, lack of repentance, but filled with elaborate thanksgiving, sacrifices, ceremony befitting for a conquering king. Is that worship? Or Samuel, bloody, sweaty, unsophisticated, yet complete obedience, loss of relationship with the king of Israel. Even if that doesn't involve elaborate ceremonies and recognition, hacking Agag to death. What is truly worshiping God? Worship, by definition, is giving proper worth to someone. It's not merely a festival. It's not merely a ceremony. It's not a program. It's not a building as we experience this pandemic. Worship, by definition, by, is meaning that I am going to give proper worth to God because God is absolutely worth it. I'm going to give proper obedience to the Lord because God is absolutely worth it. I'm going to give proper repentance and lay down at the feet of the Christ because God is absolutely worth it. And that's why Samuel says this in verse 22, that has not the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion as is sin of divination and the presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel is basically saying, your rejection of the word of the Lord means you reject God. For Saul, God is not worshipped because someone else is worshipped in his heart. The word divination here is seeking to know what to do in a way that ignores the word and the counsel of God. And you respond according to your own ways. It ignores God's ways. God says one thing, but in turn we say, I will stick my own way. Another source of wisdom, divination. Who? Oftentimes me, myself, and I. And that is what idolatry at the core is all about. Someone else is on the throne. Someone else is presiding over your life. We all have a king in our lives, don't we? Another way to say it, we all have someone's desire or will that we dictate our lives by. How often do I say, I need this, I want this for my own soul? And quite often than not, it is you and your own ways that determine what you want to do. Whether the idol expresses itself in seeking comfort, greed, pleasure, or respect, at the end of idolatry is the fact that you're worshiping something other than creator God. It is whether God is in control, God is on the throne, or you yourself, being your own God, is in the throne. And as a church, I believe this is what God is calling us to do this morning. This is what genuine Christianity is all about. Our worship has to be more than Sunday attendance. It has to be more than that. Our worship has to be more than just giving of our finances and our time. It has to be much more than that. It has to be giving of our lives. Our worship has to be more than elaborate programs and benevolent acts. It has to be all of our lives. 
Our worship has to be more than social media posts, Bible studies. It has to be all of our lives, commitment to change and to fight for justice for all. And how is that possible, church? How is that you and I who struggle to live like this? How is that possible for us? How is that possible for Saul here? And this is the grace. You know, there's grace in this text for Saul. And often we miss it. Look with me in chapter 15, verse 1. God always starts out with grace. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Verse 17, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Samuel basically reminds Saul who he was and how God made him who he is today. And Jesus tells us the same in the New Testament. While you are still sinners, I have loved you. For God so loved the world, not because you are all that great, you are small, tiny in your own eyes, but I have loved you. That's why I gave my eternal, my son, and you have eternal life in him. You're the apple in his eyes because of what Christ has done for you. And when you are overcome by this grace, when you overflow out of this love for the Lord, you cannot help but to obey the true king. When you realize God's great mercy and justice is available for you, you cannot help but to repent of your sin and want to be exposed, to be well. When you realize God is far greater than anything else in your life, you cannot help but to respond in worship to our God. It's not a forced action of obedience, not a forced action of admitting that you're wrong. It's not a forced action of giving all your life to the Lord in worship. It's a genuine experience of the Lord, love for your life, and in response to the grace, your need for Christ, you worship the Lord. And gospel does even better than that, doesn't it? Because if you're like me, I'm guilty, as I said, of all the three foundations. I repented, but I have not fully changed. My life is still a mess. I have not given 100% obedience, evidenced by yesterday alone. I often hear, are you a pastor? <laughs> not let alone, are you a Christian? I often use God as my prop and say, look at me, I'm good with God, even today as I stand before you. I still struggle with idolatry, so many idols in my life, worshiping my will better than his. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And this is what gospel says. Jesus did it. You need him. You need Christ's righteousness, righteousness in your life. Hebrew writer, quoting 1 Samuel 15, describes Christ like this, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. For Jesus obeyed fully and sacrificed himself, 
so that you and I can receive the righteousness that comes from him. He has given his life for you and I so that in his perfect obedience, his righteousness is imputed, given to us, and our sin is given to him. So when God looks at us, he sees perfect obedience, perfect repentance, perfect worship, not because how good we are at doing things, not because we are so good at elaborating how bad we are, not because we bring the best of our programs, best of our worship services, best of our money before the Lord. God is not poor that he needs your money. God is not in need that you need to offer and do services for him. God is absolutely worth all that because he alone is worthy. And because he has done his perfect righteousness through Christ for us, you and I could come to the throne of the Lord in confidence and repent knowing that you are forgiven once and for all on the cross of Christ and commit yourself absolutely, wholeheartedly to change, to preach the word of the Lord, absolutely go to the ends of the earth, but also love our neighbors, everybody, whether they're different color skin, whether they're poor or rich, because God commands us to do so. Church, this is the gospel hope. This is gospel command. It's not a social movement. We're called to love. Last night, um, actually yesterday morning, um, my family watched Sesame Street. You're like, what are you talking about, right? Sesame Street all of a sudden. But Sesame Street did this collaboration, town hall, um, for children and family talking about racism. And if you think your child is too young, they're not. Even yesterday, I was talking, having a conversation with my son, and he said, yeah, my skin's different. I'm like, what? You're five. Well, I, we talked about that. When you go to church, who do you see? It's like, I see Pastor Howard, Pastor Mari, Pastor Derek, me. We're all different, but we're all your pastors, right? He's like, yeah. Thank you, Lord. You know, but um, a lot more than that. So, watch this. This is great. The Sesame Street. Uh, they did this about uh, how do you how do you discuss racism with your children? And man, they got the questions from all these children all across the states. And children are so insightful. Their questions like pierce your heart, and you could see it in the face of all these like experts, doctors, and all these degrees. And they're like, oh, they got me. You know. One of the questions, six, six-year-old child asked this question. He said, I want to be a doctor just like you. Can I operate on people's brains to change them so they won't be racist? I'm like, whoa. Like, yes, please. No, no, you can't. Right? So doctor from Chicago, from the hospital, he says, ha, ha, and he just was laughing. Everyone's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you can treat. But, you know, as a doctor, we are called to treat everybody. And she said, we're working hard to change hearts and minds. And I was thinking, how do you do that? Right? And the final question said, when a child said, can this revolution change go on without it being on TV? A child asked the question, right? And the answer was, we need a heart change. And I was thinking, how? Right? Explain that to me, please. Preach it. You know? No, but they're not preaching it. But how do we do that? How do we change hearts and minds? How do we change that unless we literally operate in someone's heart? And we know that heart, mind, soul surgery is a lot more difficult than brain surgery. 
to change someone's heart is a miraculous event. So how does that work, church? Our First Lady Kelly shared this last week at It Ends Now rally. She was sharing about how many people have texted her, showed her, and reminded her that she's loved. And she got up and said, Church, that's great. Thank you. But what we are called to do is not only love me, but love others. Love God and love others. Love God and love others. And that's the first and the second greatest commandment. Another word to say is be a Christian. Live normally like Christians would do. Be a Christ follower for a change. Overcome by God's love. That's who we are as Christians, are we not? And what God is calling us today, the heart change we are to experience today, it's just who you are meant to be. How God intended for you and I to be. Bible reminds us God created the heavens and the earth. God created human beings. God created them. God has a purpose. God created men equal. Did not separate his love based upon the color of our skins. But sin enters. Sin enters into this grand design of the Lord, and sin of racism enters with it. But Jesus saves. He can. He will overcome. And he will change your heart when you overcome by his love for you in your life. And this is our hope for the church. He is victorious. It is written, he will overcome. And as Pastor Howard reminded us, after this I looked, this is coming, church. Behold, a great multitude that no one could remember from every nation and all the tribes, peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, to the Lamb. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Pray, church. Reflect on the word of the Lord. Think what the words mean to us. What are we fighting God's command for us? It's not a rocket science. God wants us to do it, isn't he? Let's repent together. Father, we come and we repent that we have not obeyed you 100%. Father, we have often stood by as our black brothers and sisters, black and brown brothers and sisters suffered unjustly. It has gone far too long. Father, we confess that we have often set aside your righteous words for our own ways. Forgive us, Lord, but not only that, transform our hearts so we can stand with our brothers and sisters, worshiping, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.